Something that I've added to my own practice is this redefinition of pleasure. This is something that I use all the time, which is this to say, look, pleasure for the Stoics is still going to be preferred and different. You know, and so insofar that I don't, they don't have to compromise my character, I should try to experience as much pleasure as possible. That's all fine and good. I try to minimize pain as much as possible. But there's a real tendency to try to say, well, what's the next thing? What's the bigger thing? What's the, and not only is there a tendency to try to go bigger in my own pursuit of things, but I actually actively suffer sometimes to try to reach those goals, right? Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. The ancient school of Stoicism had rivals. Perhaps the most important was the Epicureans. This is a school which, in my view, has a fundamentally mistaken philosophy. But it also contains a deep reservoir of wisdom about how to live. In this episode, Michael and I discuss what it is, offer our objections, and note what the Epicureans can teach us today. Once again, this is a new podcast, whether it's rating or subscribing in your favorite podcast player or reaching out with any feedback, comments, we greatly appreciate it. And here is our conversation. Welcome to STOA. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Trombley. And today we're going to be talking about the philosophy of Epicureanism. Yeah, excited to talk about Epicureanism today. It's contrasts with Stoicism. I think it's a nice foil, both both an alternative school of ancient thought and something that helps flesh out what it means to be a Stoic. You know, that's best done by contrasting it with something else, what it means to not be a Stoic, to be an Epicurean. Absolutely. So this podcast is focused on the theory and practice of Stoicism and with many philosophies, it's always useful to start with the theory side. You know, what is the picture of humanity that the philosophy puts forth? What is the vision of a good life, especially with these ancient philosophies that the philosophy puts forth? But before hopping into that, just on the historical side, Epicureanism was a philosophy developed by a fellow named Epicurus. And he was born in um, 341 BC. He was spent most of his time in or around, at any rate, Athens, and built up a philosophical community, a philosophical school focused on this line of thought. And the philosophy was relatively popular for quite some time, both in ancient Greece, and then it was transferred over to ancient Rome, it eventually fell out of favor amongst, say, Roman elites. And then sort of stayed in the background of a lot of philosophical discussions. So you have people like Thomas Jefferson, the American founding father, referencing Epicurus and stating that he is an Epicurean, and even Marx references Epicurus. So the main idea of Epicureanism is that humans are beings that pursue pleasure. 
we can think of it as positive mental states. That's the account of human nature, if you will, is this is what we are geared towards, is what we actually pursue. And this isn't just a descriptive account. It's not just an account of what humans are. There's also this element that it's a good thing to, that we are like this because pleasure is the only good and pain or suffering is the only evil. So it is a hedonistic philosophy in that sense. It's focused on pleasure, positive mental states, negative mental states, and pain as the things of value in the world. And that's what the theoretical picture is. So that's the first pass. The largest confusion people have with Epicureanism is that, like many other ancient Greek philosophies, it has been caricatured. So when we say someone is a hedonist or an Epicurean, usually we mean that they are far too focused on pleasure or they've developed, if you say, call someone Epicurean, maybe they've developed especially sophisticated tastes around wine or food or what have you to the expense of other goods in the world. That's not right. That's not what Epicureanism is. Epicurus himself was pretty similar to the Stoics in some respects. He counseled that, you know, it's the rich who are people who have few in wants, not those who have many material possessions and so on. So instead of cultivating a life of where one's in constant pursuit of maximizing their pleasure, he thought that what people ought to do is cultivate the character of tranquility, where they experience longer lasting, more stable pleasures, as opposed to ephemeral things that might result from whether it's ecstatic social events or wealth or the pursuit of social office. He thought, no, people should instead be more interior and ground themselves in tranquility or the Greek word for this would be ataraxia. That's the quick picture then. What do you think we should add to that, Michael? Yeah, great, Caleb. That's, I think you nailed it. I think you nailed that kind of core difference to when we think about when, if you're coming from a Stoic background, the core difference there being what is essential human nature, the Epicureans, the pursuit of pleasure for the Stoics, it's the perfection of the function, the achievement of virtue. I think to build on what you were just saying at the end there, I think that's a pretty clear distinct distinction, but when it gets interesting is when we try to flesh it out into practice, because as you said, there's these ways of fine or kind of mocking hedonism. It's often used as an insult today. So it's not a good thing to be called a hedonist today, but in, in function, the pursuit, as you said, of pleasure looks a lot like the pursuit of tranquility. And so for that, we had to understand what the Epicureans meant by pleasure. So what they meant by pleasure was the, the absence of pain, or rather they defined there as being two types of pleasure. One was the removal of pain. So this is the kind of pleasure I feel when I'm very thirsty and I take a drink of water. There's this kind of pleasure as my thirst is dissipating. It's the transition away from pain. And then there's this kind of pleasure when I exist in a painless, you know, I'm well fed, I'm well clothed, I'm at appropriate temperature, I'm sitting in a room with some good friends of mine, I have my needs satisfied, 
that was the that was the ideal this absence of pain and pains come in that was what they viewed as pleasure so they didn't actually think so they make these interesting arguments where they don't actually think who's eating plain food versus somebody who's eating fancy food as long as both of those people are well fed as long as both of those people are in the absence of pain their pleasure is equivalent their pleasure just feels different or looks different I think you can actually argue against this part of Epicureanism and you can say, well, no, clearly, you know, some food tastes better than others, but that's not the type of pleasure they were looking at. They were really looking at pleasure as, as the absence of pain. And then pain itself then had two categories, which was mental and physical, right? And so physical pain, they thought, was actually quite easy to eliminate or rather the body needs very little to receive a kind of physical tranquility. It needs, you know, enough food, enough clothes, some shelter, things like this. Um, and then there was the kind of mental pain. And then mental pain comes from a variety of different reasons. But one of our biggest sources of, phys- of mental pain is actually unmet desires, right? So when we're not happy with our potatoes and vegetables, when we want the big fancy, you know, $1,000 dinner, then we're actually causing mental pain. We're suffering because we desire these fabulous, excessive things. So when we desire this kind of extreme pleasure, what we today would call extreme pleasure, the Epicureans say, well, no, you're actually suffering. You're actually welcoming in this harm. So the way to achieve tranquility in the picture that it looked like was this picture of the Epicurean garden. So you know, as I said, you have your food, you have your shelter, you have a few good friends. And it's this kind of minimalistic lifestyle where you didn't want more than that. You didn't uh, actively pursue more than that because having these extreme desires are only going to welcome mental pain. So what I was trying to do there, Caleb, and happy for you to jump in here, but I was trying to construct this picture of Epicurean pleasure and practice as being very minimalistic. It's about satisfying base physical needs and it's about achieving a state of minimal mental suffering. And you do that by not by achieving extravagant things, but by actually not wanting extravagant things and being satisfied with plain, easily achievable, normal things. And ironically, to somebody who has this kind of stereotype of hedonism, they might think, well, that's not the life of highest pleasure, but the Epicurean would disagree. They would say, no, that is the life of highest pleasure because the person satisfied with few things is the person who has the least amount of mental suffering and they have their physical needs met. So it's this kind of, it's a bit more of a boring picture than our contemporary use of hedonist might might make it seem. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's boring in the sense that there isn't this focus on a you know sort of extreme scavenging for pleasure or ecstatic experiences or what have you but it is radical sort of in the sense that you know it's i think another line is he who is not satisfied with a little is satisfied with nothing then that is a picture of humanity that offers a egalitarian route to the good life, somewhat in a similar way that Stoicism does, where both the Stoics and 
Epicurus say that you don't need that much to live well. What you need to do is you know, work on your desires in the Epicurean sense, work on cultivating this sense of tranquility, or if you're a Stoic, what you need to do is simply work on your thought and decisions, which both of those things are something that anyone can do, even if they are not especially easy projects. But just, I think to try to summarize some of what you said there about the view about pleasure, you know, I said that the Epicureans were all about promoting positive mental states, but there's this division between the positive mental state that comes from alleviating a desire, basically, or the positive mental state that emerges when someone is simply not suffering. They are free from the presence of suffering or pain. And it's this latter one that is the state of tranquility. It's the more stable state, whereas the former one is contingent. It depends on our desires. And there's nearly a, a Buddhist type picture where, you know, you have desires that emerge, cause suffering until they are satisfied. And often, given the way humans are set up, we want some other thing. And now that next desire, that next want causes further suffering. Yeah. As you were saying, it's contingent upon desires. It's contingent upon you know, suffering to an extent. It's a contingent upon not being satisfied. You have to be thirsty to feel the pleasure that comes from alleviating thirst. You have to be lonely to get the pleasure that comes from having company. So this kind of transitionary pleasure, which a lot of people seek, um, I think you're right to point out in our modern lives, right? We often say, well, what am I lacking? What am I missing? And then we pursue that in kind of a short-sighted, short-term cycle. This is not a satisfying way to go about things. This is related to the common criticism of the hedonistic treadmill that we have now, which is about you know a constant mm -hmm. kind of pursuit of more. Another thing that I wanted to add about Epicureanism is I think that many people come to philosophy, my, at least I did, I think many people come to philosophy as Epicureans in a sense, or at the very least as utilitarians. You know, I used to teach first years. And if you ask people, you know, what's right or wrong, a lot of the time it's going to be, well, what helps the most people and what harms the most people. So for those that don't know, utilitarianism is a, I think an 18th century ethical theory that basically says when you're calculating what's the right or wrong action, what you do is you measure up what causes the most benefit for people or what causes the least amount of harm. And then you kind of, you can make a calculus based on that. And utilitarianism is different from Epicureanism because utilitarianism does this at a, at a uh, basically a universal scale, right? Like it, what, what causes the most harm or most benefit across all human beings. Whereas Epicureanism is asking you to do this calculus at an individual level, right? What's going to be the best course of action is the one that causes you the most pleasure and the least amount of harm. And I think most people intuitively, if they haven't studied philosophy, adopt this perspective. And I even think many people come to Stoicism with this perspective. And you see this all the time is people are suffering 
and they want to not suffer. They have some sort of issue, emotional regulation with anxiety, with a lack of meaning, and it's causing pain and they want to, they want a solution to that pain. And so they, they start studying stoicism. Mm -hmm. But what the Epicureans would say is that you're actually just practicing Epicureanism, right? Because if what you're pursuing is a lack of anxiety, if what you're pursuing is ataraxia, tranquility, a lack of existential dread, then you're pursuing, then your ultimate goal, your ultimate aim is an Epicurean one. And I think that's something interesting for people to think about, myself included. Sometimes, you know, I often fall into that Epicurean trap of, you know, pursuing things that make me feel good instead of pursuing things that I think are, you know, absolutely right or being motivated by virtue. Yeah. So I think that's something, I think that's something interesting to keep in mind. Yeah. The one important question is, okay, now that they, we have at least the sense of the theoretical differences between Epicureanism, Stoicism, and other philosophies, what does this look like in practice? So how would a practicing Epicurean behave different from a practicing Stoic? And to get some answer to that question, we can look at the historical examples of Epicureans and Stoics. And one key difference between the two schools is that the Epicurean, their home was in the garden. And this was a, you can say this in a metaphorical sense, but also in a literal sense, there was an Epicurean garden, which is where the Epicurean events was, were held, where the school took place. And this image promotes the idea of sort of, in a way, more isolating yourself from the external world in order to promote tranquility, creating a community of Epicureans who are focused on the good and not being so active in the city politics or other city events. And you can contrast that with the Stoics, where the Stoics thought that it was important to cultivate a sense of sort of self-sufficiency, a sense of individual virtue, but the way that virtue is expressed is through roles in the city, if you will. So their home, the Stoics' home, was not in an isolated garden, but it would be in the city where, depending on who you are, you find yourself with particular roles, depending on how you're embedded in your community, whether they are political, communal, family-oriented. And that vision of life is distinct from the Epicurean one. I, so I think that's a central difference. And w one reason why some people are attracted to Stoicism or different Epicurean approaches to life is because they are more attracted to this isolationist picture or a picture where you can cultivate virtue while remaining in the city, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that's the biggest difference. You mentioned at the start of the podcast how Epicureanism fell out of favor with you know Roman elites or, or educated Roman culture. And at least part of that picture, I assume, would be because Stoicism provides, you know, you think of Marcus Aurelius, I think it's, you know, book two, chapter one saying, Reminding himself that he'll wake up and deal with ungrateful, conniving, difficult people. 
Stoicism is this thing about when you're in the thick of it, you know, when you're in the, when you're in the dirt, how can you survive and do the best, best job you can in that situation? And Epicureanism is this picture of, well, being in the dirt, being in the thick of it, being around conniving people is stressing you out. It's like, don't worry about it. You know, just leave, just get out of there. And I guess maybe large scale Epicureanism might think that like a lot of human machinations, a lot of human states, this is my first time thinking about this, but a lot of human activity itself is, is because we're not, they're not pursuing tranquility because they're not pursuing at least the Epicurean picture of tranquility of satisfying of your needs. So instead you're pursuing more and you're building up these situations and these events and you're putting emphasis on these roles, right? Like in some roles, you know, like father, mother, brother, sister, these are core, but things like, I'm not sure how much sympathy Epicureans would have for your role as a politician or your role in your job. If that was causing you more stress than pleasure, more stress than tranquility, how much sympathy they would have about fulfilling that kind of role. They think, you know, you're getting caught up in, in something else. So I think that's, yeah, that's absolutely a major difference in practice. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Here's what our users are saying. I'm new to Stoicism and wanted to dive deeper with guidance. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. Life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. One thing I wanted to add is I think there's also some similarities, in, namely that when we look at, so before I made this division between physical suffering and mental suffering, physical suffering you alleviate by being part of the garden, you have enough food, you have enough company, that's all, you have a house, a shelter, but mental suffering is really complicated. And for the Epicureans, a lot of their study and practice was about eliminating beliefs or the thinking patterns that were false or harmful and contributing to suffering. They emphasized a lot coming to terms with death. Right? There's a famous argument by Epicurus about how death should not be a fearful for you because when you're alive, you're not dead. And when you're dead, you know, death isn't harming you, you're dead. There's these arguments about why we shouldn't worry about the thoughts of God or worry about God's being angry with us. So there was a lot of practices about identifying the kinds of beliefs or anxieties that made people suffer the most, and then applying a kind of a ther therapy or remedy to those. And in practice, I would say that, that's, that, that looks almost identical to Stoicism. Just the difference with Stoicism is Stoicism says, you know, you shouldn't think these things because they're false. And Epicureanism says you shouldn't think these things because these are the kinds of ways of thinking that ends up being more harmful than beneficial. But that kind of psychological reflection and psychological discipline was a similar part of Epicurean. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. 
in some ways, the Epicureans and Stoics have more in common with each other than the two philosophies do with many modern philosophies or ideologies. They both have this focus on cultivating virtue. For the Epicureans, you want to cultivate virtue because that's what leads to a more tranquil life. So it's not primary in the same way it is for the Stoics, but it still is of utmost importance. The two philosophies are quite distinct from modern philosophies, even if you, when you look at modern philosophies like utilitarianism that are similar to Epicureanism, they have the same, or at least very similar, often, accounts of the good. The classical utilitarian will say that pleasure is the only good, pain is the only bad, and what you want to do is maximize pleasure. And Epicurean picture agrees with that, but has a more a virtue-focused approach or individual-focused approach to thinking about what it is to live a good life and is less concerned with questions like how do you maximize the good across all people or all animals, what have you. It's a different way of thinking about ethics. It's less focused on maximization and more focusing, more focused on cultivating a way of being. I think that's a good picture of the practice. So yeah, as you said, it is still a practice. It is still a philosophy as a way of life, which in a way separates it from these modern philosophies, as you were pointing to. In terms of other things of how it manifests in practice, I would say for those listening, just that, just really emphasizing that idea, if you're going to be charitable with Epicureanism, really understanding in practice how minimalistic an Epicurean lifestyle will look like. Ironically, those, according to the Epicureans, those most in pursuit of pleasure would have less possessions, less focus on nice things, owning things, than almost anybody in a modern Western society. I'm in Canada, you're in the United States. Um, almost anybody in those positions, and almost anybody, more so than almost anybody in any society would have if they had the money to acquire more things. Most people would, you know, there's been this, there's been this contemporary movement towards minimalism, and I guess Epicureanism is kind of channeling some of that beforehand, which is to say, look, if your real, if your real goal is pleasure, you're going to want to actually have less things, take less things, acquire less. And you can contrast that with someone like Marcus Aurelius, someone like Seneca. The Stoics were not afraid of having things. They just said you just had to relate to them properly. There's no problem with having money. There's no problem with having a house full of possessions. You just got to use them properly and you got to understand their purpose and their function. But the Epicureans, I think, were actively more skeptical of your capacity to have things without desiring more things and skeptical of your capacity to, you know, why would you even want to earn the money to acquire these things if it's not for mistaken desires that those will make you happy, right? Or mistaken desires that those will satisfy your needs. So that, there's just that fundamental irony, I can't stress enough, that these hedonists wanted less than almost any other philosophy is going to recommend, either in ancient times or modern times. And only once you wrap your head around that can you see, okay, well, this actually looks a lot different than you might think a hedonist philosophy looks like. Absolutely, absolutely.
So at this point, I think we should talk about some objections to Epicureanism. You know, we've laid out the theory, what should we think about it? What did the two of us think about it? And then we can wrap up with any insight or other areas of agreements between the Stoics and the Epicureans. A classic objection to Epicureanism that the Stoics gave that many other schools have given that I think is exceptionally persuasive is just the idea that not all pleasures are good. So on the account of Epicureanism we've given, the central one of the central claims is that pleasure is the only good and all pleasures are good, even if some are better than others. Um, and it just seems like that's probably not true. We can imagine pleasures of a sadist who is torturing someone and that either results in a pleasure from satisfying a desire or in some way results in the absence of pain for them. We would not value that even if it does have this benefit of so that notion of pleasure clashes with our idea of responsibility, these other ideas of it matters what you're taking pleasure in. Pleasure is almost a measurement of an action. It's not the end of itself. And that's a key idea, I think, that many Stoics latched onto, which is best pleasure is the evaluation of an action or perhaps a natural reaction to an action or event. And we shouldn't evaluate actions only by the amount of pleasure they produce because of cases like the sadist. The other one I'll mention just before turning it over to what you think, Mike, is that the, there's a philosopher, famous libertarian philosopher Robert Nozick, who gives an example of what he calls a happiness machine. The main idea is, suppose there's, there's some machine where you can plug into it, and what will happen is you will live the most pleasurable life. The problem is that this machine is completely virtual, and whatever life you lead will simply just be happening in your head. It won't have any more reality than that. And I think most people don't want to plug in because they think there's more to the world than merely feeling good. So these two cases, the case of the sadist, the case of the happiness machine, I think are, especially the sadist, I would say, are good indications that Epicureanism, though, has some useful, um, maybe has some useful things to say about how we should relate to our desires is not the correct philosophical theory. Yeah, what do you think about that, Mike? Yeah, great. I think those are two good examples. Because, And I think they're two different arguments about things that need to have value, right? So I think I, I took the sadist example as, look, there's this thing called just like morality, ethics, virtue, there's a sense in which good and bad exist detached from pleasure and pain, right? And we can clearly see this because when a sadist is getting pleasure out of doing sadistic things, 
we want to say there's something wrong there and we we can't point to his pain as being wrong because he's not suffering or she's not suffering they're enjoying it there seems to be something external from that i guess with that one I, to play devil's advocate to the epicurean here i guess they would say that maybe they would say something along the lines of you know what's wrong here with the sadist conception is that it, it's harming somebody else it's inflicting pain you pick the example of a sadist and i would be interested, Caleb, if you had any examples of, of intuitions of situations that go against morality that don't involve pleasure or pain being inflicted on somebody else or pain being inflicted upon somebody else for the sake of somebody's pleasure. I think that that would be something there that the Epicurean could push back on. But it, that, that, that morality example reminds me of um, Euthyphro's dilemma, a platonic dialogue, where the character Euthyphro is discussing with Socrates about piety, you know, what is pious? What is the, are things good? And then the gods agree or do the gods deem these things to be good? And then they are good, which is that do gods create value or do gods just discover moral value and correctly identify moral value that already exists. And I see this as the art, the Euthyphro dilemma where I, this would be the this would be the counter to the Epicurean. The criticism of the Epicurean would say, "Well, look, it's pretty because the Epicureans say, look, you should be virtuous because virtuous people tend to be the most tranquil because they don't feel guilty, they don't have people who want to get revenge on them." And so you might, in criticism, to say, "Well, that's that's pretty darn convenient, Epicurus. You know, it's pretty lucky of you that." our intuitions about morality happen to graph on exactly to your intuitions about pleasure and pain. That's super lucky. And if those ever get pulled apart, maybe the sadist example worked, maybe it doesn't run up in an issue where you have to pick one, you have to pick your intuitions about morality or you have to pick your intuitions about pleasure and pain. I have some things to say about the brain, the experience machine, but um, yeah. Any, anything you want to say in, in response to that, Caleb? So I'll, Respond to the case of the sadist, and then we can talk about what you think about the happiness machine case too. So I think the relevant question in the sadist example is not whether the Epicurean can condemn the sadist. I think they typically can. They can say, as you did, that the sadist causes suffering to others. And that is enough suffering that it outweighs any pleasure the sadist might get. And they can also say things like the cult, the character that sadism promotes is ultimately something that yeah. turns out worse for the sadist. Though, of course, as you said, that seems somewhat convenient for them. You know, is that always true that the sadist character results in more suffering than pleasure over time? It's not obvious. But I think that what brings makes this example so convincing to me is that the Epicurean cannot condemn the pleasure the sadist gets from the act in the sense that they must still say that pleasure has goodness inherent in it because it is the only thing that is good and now they need to think, you know, take into account these other questions 
you know, what's the effect on others or what's the long-term cause that, uh, or what's the long-term effect of having a character that takes pleasure in this sort of thing. Whereas I think what one should say is that there's simply no, nothing good about experience the sadist pleasure that, you know, that that's it. So I think that's what drives home that counterexample to me is this idea that the Epicurean looks like they're committed to the idea that pleasure is always good, even if it's not good on net, of course, but it just seems like pleasure is not always good. Sometimes it's completely irrelevant to evaluating the value of an yeah, I think that's a compelling counter-argument. I wasn't understanding that distinction before. You said it about, you know, it's not simply it's not simply that the sadist or the person that takes pleasure out of hurting others, it's not simply the fact that this intuitively seems wrong to us. That's not your point. And then how can they explain that away? Because as you said, they can explain that away by referring to the suffering they're causing. It's the fact that they have no way of talking about or judging that the pleasure felt by the person harming others in a way that's negative at all because pleasure is just imbued with this positive moral force. It is imbued with this. And maybe they're closely related. Maybe they sometimes cause each other. But to say it's a one-to-one, as you point out in these kind of situations, it makes that one-to-one correspondence seem really weird. Yeah, I'm compelled by that. I think that's persuasive. The other example you raised, I think, is a good one about the experience machine. So, you know, in in the 2000s example, just the matrix, you know, somebody plugs you in and you experience the world. Because I I think the example of the sadist is about, well, how do we account for, or what do we have to say about morality that's separate from pleasure or conceptions of good and bad that's separate from pleasure? And I think this other one, this experience machine is a question about where we place the value of truth or where we place the value of meaning in a sense. Because we do not just want, you know, if we take a, if we take a look at the Stoic picture, the Stoic would say, you want to be a good person. You don't just want to think you're a good person and then feel good about yourself, right? You want to actually be a good, you want to have meaningful friendships. You don't want to just have everybody pretending to be your friend and then you feel, oh, wow, I'm so popular. I have such great friendships with people, but they all hate you behind your back. Like you, you, want to, you want to actualize your nature. You don't want to just feel good about actualizing your nature. So there's this sense of, of truth and meaningfulness to living in the stoic picture that Epicureanism loses out on. And as you said, I, again, I think, there's, I think the Epicureans can have that internal consistency. I think the Epicureans can say, you think you want meaning and truth, but you just want meaning and truth because, you know, the person who actually has good friends tends to not learn, tends to have more pleasure because they tend to not learn that their friends actually hate them. Like, it's just like, if it's true in reality, it's more secure. It's more likely to be, to provide long-term tranquility. But that's why we value truth. It's a tool mm-hmm. gathering pleasure. But I don't think that's persuasive. I don't think... I, and the other thing that the Epicureans could say is, you know, just the fact that you wouldn't plug yourself into the matrix is not the same as it being better for you because we could have a mental hangup where the idea of plugging ourselves in is very uncomfortable. But if someone could plug us in without us knowing, without us noticing, 
we didn't have to make that choice. I think there is some, some something to say. In that sense, we might be better off for it. So I guess I'll, what I'm saying there is the fact that we might be hesitant to plug ourselves into the experience machine or the fact that it might seem intuitively or viscerally a poor choice is not the same as it being a bad choice. But at the end of the day, I'm more struck by that stoic picture of, you know, you want to actualize your function. You don't just want the psychological benefits of doing so. It seems like a shallow life. You know, when we only have, when we only have one to live, we only have one, one swing at this. That's my thought on that example. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I would say that the experience machine is less compelling than the sadist example, but it does raise a lot of questions about what else might be of value to the... To, to beings like us, uh, as opposed to pleasure. You know, there are all these related cases, like should you keep promises made to someone after they have died or something like this, where keeping your promise will not cause that person to have any more or less pleasure, any more or less suffering. But there's still this sense that there's something about truth, about keeping your agreements that is good and Potentially, you would be, in some respects, making that person uh, worse off by not keeping your agreements, or you would be treating them in a way you shouldn't be treating them. And it's an open question, or at any rate, it's, it's not easy for the Epicurean to explain why that would be the case. I, I, think, they would, I think the Epicurean would have to do a lot of heavy lifting on saying, We've developed these kind of heuristics. We've developed these kind of intuitions about breaking promises being false or being harmful. Then those intuitions are just heuristics or proxies for things that tend to produce pleasure or tend to reduce pain. I think they would have to do a lot of heavy lifting by saying a lot of our conceptions of morality are things that we've developed as general guidelines to being as tranquil as possible. But I think all of what both these examples have in common is we're just saying no to that. We're saying, or at least we're saying the Stoics would say no to that. There's something else, there's something else in play here than just a heuristic or a strategy for reducing suffering and maximizing pleasure. There's something else the morality tries to capture or tries to describe about the world. So the question arises, how does this matter on the level of practice? And the large theme that I think emerges from these kinds of questions about Epicureanism is that there's more to life than tranquility or pleasure. So if you're thinking about making a decision, if you're thinking about some kind of life path, one shouldn't merely be thinking about questions of experience. And perhaps many people overrate you know, how much you know, how uncomfortable they might experience as a result of a particular action, or maybe even how much pleasure they would get after an action. And it's, there's more to the world, more to value than our experience is the main upshot, the main practical upshot of these objections. And that matters when it comes to making everyday decisions. Yeah, well put. The last thing we can discuss before wrapping this off is Okay, so we spent some time explaining what Epicureanism is. We've explained some key problems with philosophy and contrasted it with aspects of Stoicism. But of course, the tradition has a lot of wisdom 
in it. So let's end with some notes on that. You know, like what comes to mind when you think about what the Epicureans can offer us today? Yeah, that's a good one. I think what comes to mind with what the Epicureans, something that I've added to my own practice is this conception of, is this redefinition of pleasure. We already hit on it, but this is something that I use all the time, which is this to say, look, pleasure for the Stoics is still going to be preferred and different. You know, and so insofar that I don't, they don't have to compromise my character. I should try to experience as much pleasure as possible. That's all fine and good. I try to minimize pain as much as possible, but there's a real tendency to try to say, well, what's the next thing? What's the bigger thing? What's the, and not only is there a tendency to try to go bigger in my own pursuit of things, but I actually actively suffer sometimes to try to reach those goals, right? Like, so I, I might say, well, look, I need to, I need to make a lot of money, which, which involves hard work so I can get this nice shiny new toy or go on this vacation or something like this, or I need to deprive myself in the short term. I need to save money. Like I, I need to do all these things that are short-term difficult in pursuit of this big thing at the end. And I think Epicureanism causes me to kind of question that line of thinking and say, well, look, is that what, it's, is that what life is about? Is it about suffering so that I can have this big payoff? Or is it about trying to be as happy as I can be in the moment, as tranquil as I can be in the moment, which involves being as satisfied with what I have? You know, all of us have much, much more than any person, you know, perhaps someone like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, you know, they had a lot more wealth. So they could do different things, but our access to the internet, our access to physical security, medicine, access to food, a variety of experiences. We're already, you know, we're already, if, you, if you're in Western, if you're in Canada or the United States, um, there's already a at least in my experience, access to, to, to lots of amazing things. So trying to take more enjoyment of those in the moment, that's a big thing that, that I'm working on that I've taken from Epicureanism. Another thing that I've taken ironically is just a joy in the reduction of suffering. So this view of this second type of pleasure, so that was pleasure. That was one type of pleasure, which was just like being satisfied with tranquility, satisfied with having enough. And then the other type of pleasure is reducing suffering. So trying to take joy from, you know, when I'm really thirsty on a hot day and I just did a workout, taking joy from drinking water. When I'm really tired after a long day of work, taking joy from sleeping, from lying in my bed. When I'm hungry, taking joy in, in, in eating lunch. This kind of idea of enjoying these small transitions towards tranquility. That's something I really take on in my day to day. I guess to wrap those up, Epicureanism has really inspired the way I deal with indifferent, the way that I deal with external goods and the way I try to relate to those in terms of pleasure and pain. It's been deeply influential for me in that sense, but not, I think, as influential in terms of the way I orient the ultimate goal of my life. I'm still compelled by this stoic picture of virtue instead. What about you, Caleb? What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Those are all, all good. I would say... For me, I think I would name three aspects of Epicureanism, two which it shares in common with Stoicism and another which is slightly different. So the first is 
just this idea that, you know, as Seneca quotes Epicurus saying once, if you wish to make Pythocles rich, do not add to his material goods, but subtract from his desires. So there's this emphasis on, as you mentioned, sort of desire management, this discipline of desire, and often what you want to do or who you want to be is cultivate yourself to be someone who doesn't want these unnecessary goods, unnecessary things. The second aspect that Epicureanism shares with Stoicism as well is just this thought that happiness is available. You don't need that much to live well in a given moment. And I think like Stoicism, it forces you to question, to step back whenever you're in the thick of things, whenever I'm maybe caught up in a particular project. You know, do you have enough? Do you have what you need at the current moment? And typically these thoughts about us being dependent on externals, things outside of us, are misleading. And I think both the Epicurean and the Stoic will often say, look, you have, you do have what you need in, in the current moment, and that is enough if you orient yourself in the right way. The very final aspect, which I think is slightly different from Stoicism, is this idea of passivity. So the Epicureans may have gone too far in the direction of extracting themselves from the city and sort of isolating themselves in a garden. But there is this insight that the Epicureans had, which is that some games are just worth exiting from. And in their current moment, like the sorts of games they were uh, leaving, not competing on, were these political, military ones, which probably we would think are good things to not partake in. There's not that much glory or honor and simply playing another part in this you know long history of you know, cities conquering one another and then being the conqueror and so on you know what is all that for the epicureans sort of extracted themselves from that game and there's a challenge there which is of the traditional roles people have of the calls for action there are some times where what's required probably is simply exiting the relevant game or leaving to focus on what really matters instead of staying in the thick of it. Um, so that's a challenge that I think is always worth having in the back of one's mind. Yeah, I love that third example. It reminds me of Seneca's calls for consistency or Epictetus's example of the you know, man who's asked to hold the chamber pot, which is this idea of, you know, either, I guess the takeaway from that is either exit the game or play it well and commit to it. But in order to do that, you have to kind of ask yourself if it's worth exiting. And I think sometimes, as you point out, the Stoics can take a lot of these games for granted or a lot of these like social machinations for granted. And it comes across when you read Stoics, right? And they get caught up in like the way that a philosopher should have a beard or um, the way people should dress or things like this. And they're very clearly these kind of cultural artifacts, right? They're very clearly talking about things that are 
were just most relevant in this kind of Roman period of time. And from our perspective, it seems like, well, you didn't have to play that at all. You didn't have to participate in that at all. That doesn't seem essential in a certain way. So yeah, great point there to remind us to ask ourselves, are there some games that we shouldn't be playing? Do you have any examples from your own life of when you've done this, when you've gotten out? Yeah, it's always an interesting question. I think that, I think there's one example that comes to mind are probably uh, there's some amounts of pressure to be involved in political games or discussions on the national scale that are not always worth spending time on. And I think the way people spend time on those games is often probably a lot of people would be better off if they didn't spend so much time glued to their phone, reading the news regularly and so on. So I think that's something that the Epicureans would push for. And I think that there's always some temptation to stay on top of things. Politics is often, at least I find it very entertaining and intellectually interesting and it seems important, but often the better move is to extract yourself from that. To your point there, that's a perfect example, I think, of how there's room in between the garden. You know, there, there's some space for political participation that falls in between constant obsessing and micromanaging and, and participation and isolationist existing in the garden entirely removing yourself, right? So there's these kind of degrees and scales. And yeah, even if the garden of the Epicureans has gone too far, um, it, it's still worth asking yourself what degree of participation you want. I think that's a good example that demonstrates that. Another example might be is an economist who I follow, and I think he does a lot of good work. His name is Brian Kaplan. He has a piece which is called, this is not the exact name, but it's something like in defense of creating bubbles, which he argues it's good to create and cultivate your own social bubble of people like you who have the same values and who don't get trapped in sources of conflict that you might have if you were maybe wider had a wider range of people who you bump into every day. And part of life is cultivating in the digital world something like a garden where you don't just let everyone into your mental headspace, everyone into your feed, into your email, whatever it is, but you have a bubble that is productive and where you can form deeper, longer relationships with people. And I think that sort of pushes up against this narrative of it's good to diversify your friends. And there's always a question about why, you know, why is that? Why would it be good to diversify your friends? In some cases, you would learn a lot about the world and that might be a good fit for some people. But in other cases, the sort of pressure to not create a bubble probably just leads people to maybe focus too much on people who are outside of their social group or can end up generating points of conflict that just aren't that productive. So I think this is another warrant. So this is another thought that should be understood in the same way the chamber pot example is understood, which is something like if you want to have a wider range of friends, of a wider, if you don't want to be the person who cultivates 
a bubble, then you should be meet people where they're at in a genuine way, really be seeking to understand people's perspectives or simply cultivate, you know, deep relationships with people like you. Don't do what so many other people do, which is this thing in between where you have some amount of, you know, just amount, just the right amount of going outside of your bubble to stress everyone out for, you know, no reason or something like this. Or sort of surf, I think a lot of people maybe explore things at the surface level without really understanding what people, other people's perspectives are, which takes a serious amount of investment. It might not, it might not be worth it for everyone. Yeah, great. Good example. I think uh, we're running up on time now, but it almost makes me think of, we could have another episode talking about what a contemporary Epicurean garden might look like, understanding that in kind of a tech space or a social media space or media consumption space instead of a literal physical place. That's a, that's a, an interesting thought that you're, that you left me with. So I'll, I'll chew on that one more. Yeah, that's a great idea. I think, you know, as Seneca was fond of doing, there's always this other source of wisdom in these different philosophical traditions. So certainly spend more time on Epicureanism. That would be, that'd be uh, productive. Excellent. Want to call it there? Yeah, let's call it. All right. Thanks for chatting. That's uh, another conversation. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Let us know if you want to hear, if you have any other objections or want to hear more about Epicureanism or you have, you know, you think we, we were not charitable enough to your Epicurean tendencies, let us know. We'll talk more about it. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com, and please get in touch with us at stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.